push it for Steven Gerrard. He's not shy of shooting. Oh, right. And you can see why. That is sensational. You're listening to the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. Another week and another edition of the Robbie Fowler podcast. Welcome along then. Chris McCarty joined by the man himself, Liverpool legend, former Leeds, Blackburn. I've given this intro so many times. Any any teams that I've missed out, Rob? Blackburn, Cardiff, any others? Uh, well, you've, you've missed a few Australian teams out and a Thai team, of course. <laughs> what, what's the club that you have least, the least best memories from? It's a bit harsh asking you this, but I'll ask it anyway. You know what? Without being obviously... Disrespectful. Disrespectful. It would probably be Blackburn in all fairness because I went there with, um, I mean, I left Cardiff and I mean, I left because obviously my family were back in, up in North and uh, we had the house up in Cardiff and I, I was out injured uh, Cardiff and Paul Ince was the dead manager at Blackburn and he just phoned me up and he obviously knew, um, he knew my missus was, was up at North and he knew that I maybe wanted to get, get home. Uh, and he just said, he said, look, we'll, we'll give you a contract. He said, I won't guarantee you'll be playing, but, um, you know, you come there, show us what you've got and, uh, you know, we'll look after you. Um, probably the worst decision <laughs> I've done on a, on a football team. Not against Inti or not against uh, the club. I just obviously never played. So uh, whether it was that, that moment that I just, everything was bypassing me or, you know, I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, but it just seemed pointless. So I went to Blackbird, didn't, I played... Ironically, I played three games. Uh, we played against Man U in the cup. We played against uh, Everton in the cup, and I played against Bolton in the league. Uh, we beat Everton in the cup one nil. Uh, got mad at the match. We drew with Bolton nil nil, uh, and we got beat. Uh, I actually can't remember the score against Man U because any games against Man U and you lose, you just forget about them, Chris. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, yeah, three games, and uh, Incy got Incy got the, the sack, uh, and obviously big big Sam took over then, didn't he? He and did. Uh, I, I did in the the grapevine and various stories over the years that Big Sam wasn't a fan of fan of myself. Really? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know whether it's true. Well, I what think, do you well, mean? Uh, well, can, what do you mean you heard on the grapevine? Obviously, some players that have played with him uh, has obviously no, told no, you that. Not 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 from any. Just uh, that he just wasn't a fan of me. Uh, I don't know if it was true or not. So uh, when Incy got the sack uh, and he took over, I just stopped going in because I was only on a, like a, 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 a basically a page of play. So I knew. Well, I didn't know, but I had to envisage that he didn't like me uh, and I wasn't going to play anyway, so uh, I just felt uh, it was pointless going in. Uh, I think people, certainly the Blackburn fans, were were just were, were, were the, with the idea that it was just a pointless signing because I wasn't playing and, uh, I mean, I wasn't on much money, to be fair. Um, but, yeah, it was, I think it was just a, a pointless signing all round, to be fair. They probably didn't want me. I only went really because NC... Uh, NC wanted me there, and NC got the sack, and uh, I just knew I wasn't going to play, so I just I just never went in. Interesting. Basically, I just basically stayed off. <laughs> and then where did you go? Where did you end up from there? Australia. I went. I went to Australia then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I ended up going to a, a team called North Queens and Fury, uh, who who uh, were a brand new team in the uh, the Australian A League, um, and then uh, one year there, that club. Folded a couple of years after I, I went there. Uh, obviously, not not <laughs> to do with me, Chris. <laughs> no, yeah, nothing to do with me. I think it was just obviously um, maybe living within the means. The owner was uh, at the time couldn't 
I don't know, couldn't keep up with the uh, expenditure, paying the rent. Yeah, saying paying the rent, I shall say. But um, yeah, I ended up going over to Perth Glory. Uh, obviously, another year in Australia, and then um, yeah, I, I went home. Then I, I was just about to uh, retire. Uh, I, I got offered another year contract in in Australia for Perth Glory, and uh, my missus was was back in the UK, and uh, I went home, and I, I was ready to pack it in, and then out, out of the blue. I just got a phone call from uh, the, the managing director of uh, Muntong United in, um, in uh, just outside Bangkok, and would have been interested. So obviously, you do you do your due diligence. Uh, looked at his club, uh, and yeah, I ended up going there and yeah, done all right. You know, scored a few, not not many, but played okay. Uh, we had a, a Portuguese manager who was a bit of a tit, in all fairness. <laughs> uh, in what fact, is one of the stories. One of the stories with him. His name was. Um, Enrique Callista, uh, Enrico, Enrique Callista or Callista, I can't even think actually. But he was uh, he was a smoker, typical Portuguese, where he just used to smoke fags all the time. And um, I went into his room once, and honestly, it was like going into a betting shop in the early eighties, <laughs> late seventies, early eighties, and just full of smoke. And I was just in there trying to have this conversation. All I was doing was just coughing. And, you know, I'll have to get out. Boss will have to get out. What he was doing was coughing. Oh, so it was a bit of a nightmare. Then he got the sack actually, and then um, I ended up taking over as a player manager. Done all right to be honest. Uh, took over when we were third in the league. We finished third. Uh, got to the final of the uh, Thai FA Cup. Uh, lost to the league champions one 0 after extra time, uh, and then just just went home. Then uh, obviously to do all my coaching badges, yeah. uh, and then obviously done the uh, the. the, the 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 A license, uh, the pro license, and then uh, at Bootswell Travel, I ended up um, back over in Australia a good few years later. Well, there we roll. there we have it then, folks. The podcast this week, a tour de force of Robbie Fowler's <laughs> <laughs> latter career. It's amazing. I've just bored everyone there, Chris, haven't I? <laughs> we'll, we'll bring them back. Don't you worry, Rob. We'll bring them back. And listen, there's loads to bring them back with. I've got to have a bone with you, though. I've got a bone to pick with you because I, I'm, I'm doing my due diligence for this pod this week and I see big headlines, newspapers. Hang on. Should I, should, I, should I be worried here, Chris? Because you just said you've got a bone to pick with me. I mean, you're uh, six foot ten, aren't you? I, I'm I mean, six foot ten. You need to be yeah. worried here, pal. You should see me. I bench. You see what I bench in the gym. But I, I'm seeing all these uh, articles doing the rounds in the UK this past week over what you've been saying in your column in the, in the Daily Mirror about uh, Liverpool not going to win the league this year. Where's that golden stuff? You've not been giving us that on this podcast. Uh, well, you've not asked me, have you? Are Liverpool winning the league this year? I don't think they will. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, stranger things have happened. I mean, yeah, stranger <laughs> things have happened. I mean, I've, oh, you put me on the spot here. Yes, and uh, I, I actually think Liverpool winning the league last year made City angry. Is that what you're going with? And they have just become this team who are unbelievable again. Uh, to be so far ahead, they're, they're in challenging for all cups. Uh, Champions League still in, League Cup final, FA Cup still in, uh, all without a, a recognised striker. It's amazing. Uh, I, think, I think City are brilliant, and it's it's not me being disrespectful you know on Liverpool I think I just think Liverpool have Liverpool are a great team they really are and I know people uh, people want to have a go at them at the minute because they're not playing as well as what they are it's easy to uh, to stick the knife into them at the minute last year when City were X amount of points behind Liverpool everyone was saying oh it's because Laporte's missing and you know they haven't got a recognised you know defender and uh, and it's understandable well, Liverpool haven't had a, uh, a recognised central defender for, I mean, for three quarters or 
maybe nine tenths of the season so far. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a valid it's a valid reason, and I'm not making excuses for Liverpool. I, I'm giving you reasons, and Jurgen will tell you exactly the same thing. I think that has played havoc. Uh, if Liverpool had a full strength team, of course Liverpool would be challenging. Uh, obviously they haven't. Uh, nothing they can do, but. City have got gears and they've got levels and he can he can just up it a notch on a football pitch as we seen last week in the game against uh, you know Liverpool at Anfield where Liverpool get back into the game 1-1 and it's then you think well maybe this game could go either way but then he just put it into second gear and then I mean just ran away with the game uh, and I think what Liverpool have missed more than any club probably in world football Liverpool have missed the fans more than anyone mm. I really believe that um, I think if you look at obviously Manchester United you look at Everton this year both teams who have done well um, and they've done well without the fans uh, I think if the fans are there uh, and the fans are you know quick to have a go at times then uh, you see different results I mean it was only the start of the season um, you know Ancelotti was 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 probably not flavour of the month um, no. in terms of the, the in the eyes of a lot of the Everton fans uh, and if the fans were at the game, then you know the the stick or the 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 performances would have been highlighted that little bit more. Uh, and from an Everton point of view, uh, thankfully the, the the fans weren't there to you know to get on the back of the the manager, get on the back of the, the players. Uh, and you know you, you've seen the fruits because the, the Everton are playing really well at the minute as well. So uh, I mean, I mean the fans won't like this, but maybe they have benefited a little bit from. Uh, from the fans. the fans, whereas whereas Liverpool, I think, have gone the other way. Liverpool have have really, really come unstuck because they haven't got that that mega support behind them, and we see all the reports coming out that you know the fans, are, the players are missing the fans. You know, it's 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 not it's not, it's not a cliche, Chris. It, it, I think it's genuine, genuinely yeah. the case. Listen, if if that's the way you feel, I absolutely one hundred percent respect that. You you say there about Man City, and I want to come to them because, of course, special guest of ours on this episode six of the Robbie Fowler podcast, brought to you by McDonald's McCafe, great tasting coffee made simple. We are going to be in conversation with arguably the best midfielder of his generation. That's up for debate. We will maybe debate that in a little bit. Man City, another man who we've had on this podcast, Graham Souness, tells me. We're not asking the right questions because he's gone viral in the last 48 hours, 72 hours as well because he has said that Phil Foden is the best that Gareth Southgate has in midfield at this moment in time. His performances in recent weeks have been right up there. Are you a fan? Is Phil headed for superstardom, Rob? I think so. Uh, look, I'm always wary of, of putting players on pedestals. I really am because I think... It's very easy to put them there, but it's it's also very easy to knock them off. And I think with obviously Foden, he, he's he's quietly gone about his stuff. Um, you know, you, you think back to his obviously his, his escapades in um, you know in England shirt under 17s, winning the World Cup, uh, and then he that was really when he became known to everyone. Yeah. Everyone knew he, he was a great player. Uh, and 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 to be fair to Pep, Pep has been absolutely magnificent with him. You know, he, he's. He's played him when he's needed to. Uh, you know, he hasn't, you know, he hasn't run him to through the ground. He's sort of like taking his time. I don't he's been patient with him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So he, he he's he's not ran him into the ground. So he's uh, he's let him sort of develop into this play. You know, he's come in, uh, you know, and he's had uh, starts. He's had games where he's sub. Uh, he's come on off the bench, and he does look an unbelievable player. Uh, and obviously, his goal last week, in particular against Liverpool. I mean, I, I as a striker. What I loved about that goal was, and I say this to every player, whenever you get maybe half a yard or you know 
half an inch to to get a shot away get the shot away because the keeper doesn't get set the keeper doesn't have time to prepare but if you if you move a ball out maybe two yards out and then you're getting set up for the shot then the keeper gets set up and he can save it uh, but you you see him running in at the defender in the box switches it to the left uh, maybe a couple of inches and takes that shot quick yeah. uh, I thought it was a brilliant goal and it I mean Allison reacted when the ball was in the back of the net and, and people, some people say oh, well maybe the keeper should have done better for that goal I, I disagree I just think the fact is that Foden took the chance as, as quick as what as quick as what any striker you'd see, you know, uh, have that chance, and you know he he was, I thought he was brilliant last week against Liverpool. He really was, uh, and it's not the first time he's been brilliant. He is a real, real player, and he is a player that quite rightly we can get excited about. Yeah, another player who's famed for that taking the shot early is is our very own Mason Greenwood. Rob, we'll just drop that in now because Man United don't get enough love on this pod. Uh, I've got to ask you about the midfielders you played with before we welcome our very special guest this week. Obvious ones there, Gaza. I know he lit up. Obviously, yeah. the England team mid nineties. I, I remember Gaza in his pomp I guess at Rangers Football Club coming off the back of Euro 96 everyone's got a Gaza story Rob but I mean is he a midfielder that you know when you look at the very best that you've played with is he up there? Without a shadow uh, he's probably the most exciting English player that, that we've, we've probably all seen in all fairness I think what he's done and uh, look let's forget about his you know his off field problems if you like and and talk about Gaza as a player. You know, he was a player who, who had a little bit of everything. You know, he could he could beat a man. He could control games. He could he could control players around him. Um, he could walk past players for fun. Uh, and and you know what, he could score goals as well. And he, he had a little bit of everything. You know, and and obviously we'll we'll work it out in a bit where we we have the guest on. But this guest who we're going to have on, we'll, we'll name in a sec. I mean, he, he's he's got everything in the locker. And you think of the great players in, in the Premier League, the likes of your Lampard, the Scholes, um, the Vieiras, the Gerrards, all these great players, they all have different attributes. Uh, but Gazza certainly had, for me, he had probably every attribute needed to be a, a great midfielder. He really did. And of course, off the field, he, he was he was a character as well. Tell me this, Rob, you were in that Euro 96 squad, weren't you? I was, mate, yeah, you, I was. You, uh... you, you were nowhere near that dentist here, were you? <laughs> <laughs> on more than one occasion, I shall say, Chris. Well, well f- you know, funny enough with that one, I think, um, I mean, how that came about, so obviously before the tournament, we went over to Hong Kong and, and we actually played a game. And I remember, all I remember is Dave Watson. Remember Dave Watson who played for Everton? Yeah, he played against half. us. Yeah. yeah, he played against us for like an Hong Kong 11. Uh, and I mean, I can't even think of the, the score, actually. It might have been 1 or 2 nil. so it probably wasn't the greatest performance. Um but all I remember is like we we were allowed to to go on a night out because we'd we'd been away for a for a week or so, uh, and we were potentially going to be uh, away for for a month or so with this with this tournament, and uh, we went over there and we, and we were allowed a night out. Can I can and, I jump uh, in here and ask Rob? You were allowed a night out. Was Roy Evans there with his shirt on? Roy Evans was Roy Evans. Remember episode one? You told us the greatest <laughs> the greatest story <laughs> ever of Roy Evans. Ping! Let's hit yeah, the town, lads. But I tell you what, and uh, he, I mean it doesn't get Brian Robson was um, Brian Robson was obviously an England coach. Yes, he was, and he he was with us. And I remember being out. We we all had this like Umbro gear on with um, obviously the you know the England collective wear that we all we all had on. And we were all at this this night out, and the, the, what was I trying to think of the night the nightclub? It was called the Jump Jump Bar. I think it might have been called. 
So we're all in there, and Brian Robson's um, he's in there. So we've all got, as I said, we've all got the like the England tracksuits on, England t-shirts, and England polo shirts on. And I, th- I think it was Gaza. I think Gaza started off, and he started pulling someone's t-shirt, and it just ripped everywhere. And all of a sudden, every player's t-shirt and polo's just been ripped off. And uh, Brian Robson was there. And Brian Robson just went, no, 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 not my Versace. I was the only one who had like a, a Versace polo. So you can imagine, he, he's there as like a, a as, as a coach. And he's there because someone had, someone had ripped his Versace top and it was just hanging on by, I mean, Brian Robson's just immaculate, isn't he? And it was just hanging on by, by his top button. And everyone else's tops ripped to shreds. And we had a few more drinks. And then all of a sudden, this, this dentist chair was, was thrust upon us and, I think every player did have a go, and we've all seen the like the I think the infamous pictures were with Gaza and Teddy and and Maka, you know, pouring the shots uh, in, into into the mouths. But um, yeah, we, we all we all had a go. Uh-huh. We all had a go. Some some more than others. <laughs> but you know, but it you but it was the catalyst of a, of a, a good tournament actually because uh, I mean, obviously you being a big England fan as well <laughs> as a Liverpool fan. <laughs> you'll, uh, I mean, you, you'll know. I think obviously that tournament, and obviously we we did play Scotland. But I, what I remember most about the tournament, it was quite relaxed. You know, we we had the hotel to ourselves. It was obviously just us, and we had free run. And the television crew had a a, a man-made studio, if you like, in the in the back of the the, uh, the back of the hotel in the gardens. And whenever they were live at night, myself and Gaza would be out in the garden doing cartwheels. <laughs> if you can imagine, you, you look at the studio and there was a, there was this big, uh, big window, and in the back of the window there was a, this big white hotel, uh, and then all of a sudden you just see these these silhouettes in the background doing cartwheels. And I think it was Jack Charlton actually. Someone tried to make a big thing about it, and, and Jack Charlton just said, "I'm oh, just put the boys having a laugh." And that was me and Gaza doing cartwheels <laughs> on the front lawn of this uh, of the Burnham Beaches Hotel. Oh, it's brilliant! I didn't expect to go there. A Euro '96. I don't have fond memories of that whatsoever. But Gaza, that was a tournament. You, you, you probably won't have a lot of fond memories for a lot of tournaments. No, not not at all, mate. It's been a while. 1998 was the last time we made a major tournament. But that's all going to change next summer. We're going to win it. Yeah. We're in England's group. I think we are as well, aren't Scotland? So Gaza, Gaza, we're not going to win it, Rob, before you say anything, before you say a jot. Gaza up there. In terms of club, and I'm conscious this guy's waiting, so we don't want to keep him too much longer, our guest this evening. Uh, I've got to ask you, though, give me your semblance from a Premier League standpoint. Who was the Premier League midfielder that stood out? Well, look, I, th- I think the obvious ones are, obviously, Steven Gerrard, who, who I played with for, for a number of years. For me, he, he is the pick out, out, out of a great bunch. Uh, I mean, Paul's goal was brilliant. Lampard was was unreal, uh, and and then you go back as far as the, the likes of Vieira and uh, you know Petit, who were you know instrumental in. Come on, Rob! Uh, Come on, Rob! You've not mentioned the the, the captain. You've not I, mentioned. I, I know. I, I give us a minute, Chris. You know, I'm just talking about the Arsenal uh, pairing of uh, Petit and Vieira. But I mean, obviously, yourself being a being a huge Man U fan. You know, go on. I will admit it. I will admit it. Um, I mean, obviously, Keane. Keane, Keane was brilliant for you boys, wasn't he? I think uh, he was a player that I, I would have loved to have played with, actually. You know, the way he is, the way he was demanded on the pitch, um, he probably can get a little bit more out of players. Did we need it? Did we need that type of player? Maybe yes. we did. You know, maybe it's all maybe it's all hypothetical what type of player we needed, but maybe he could have been, or that type of player could have been the. Um, 
you know the the, the catalyst if you like to uh, take us to a to a new level. Uh, but look, yeah, we we had we had great players. Uh, I mean, one player who, who probably not many people will will recognise as a centre midfielder would be John Barnes. Mm. John Barnes, everyone will remember for this marauding left winger who was unbelievable, you know, skipping past players and putting you know wonderful crosses in for the likes of Aldridge, Beasley, and Rush. All these great players. Uh, but when I played with him, he was he was a little bit older, and he used to run games in centre midfield. Uh, and I thought he was brilliant. I mean, I, I, we were lucky enough with uh, with Barnes. Michael Thomas was was excellent. Jamie Redknapp w- was brilliant as well. Uh, he goes under he goes under a lot of radars. Jamie, um, his passing, his passing was brilliant. I mean, I, I, I feel a bit thingy here because I've not mentioned the likes of Ronnie Whelan, who was probably the most one of the most underrated players I, I think I've probably ever witnessed. In all fairness, for what he used to do on a pitch, uh, Jan Mulby was was incredible. Uh, now they're just the players I played with, but I mean the, the likes of Scholes, he was brilliant. Scholes, he was, he was something else, wasn't he? Scholes, he. Well, I mean, was he? I continue to have debates on on Scholes. Obviously, I think he was, but a lot of people will tell you Stephen Gerrard is the far better player, and and maybe you will tell me that Scholes, he was unbelievable. He was right up there. Now, uh, look, if if you were to sort of sit me down here and say. Um, Who's the best out of all them players? And I'm I'm saying Stephen Gerrard all day long. It's a, it's a debate, and everyone will have their opinions, and everyone will have their reasons why. I mean, I've I've sort of grew up with Stephen, if you like, in terms of uh, when he got in the side and uh, going back to Liverpool, and then you see a different Stephen Gerrard, uh, someone who was more more experienced and someone who who could control the games a little bit more. With the Scholes, he played a game at whatever pace he wanted to play it. Uh, you know, he had the ability to find passes. Uh, he had the the abilities to. He he did control games, Scolzi. Um, you know, and however he wanted to play, he, he was just so relaxed around the you know around the football, and he made the game look easy. He really did. Uh, and you know, being a, I mean, I didn't play that many times for England, but you know, the few times I did play, uh, he he is one of them players that you you can as a forward get excited about playing in front of. Uh, but you know, I mean, if you were to sort of sit me down here, and, and I know you are it's about picking the players who I played with, uh, I mean, I don't think some anyone comes close to uh, Stevie G. Stevie G is 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 levels. I mean, he is. I mean, you talk about world class footballers, and maybe world class footballers do get mentioned a little bit too much this year. But Stephen was the architectural world class player. He really was. Stephen and then Scolzi. Yeah, and look, you, you mentioned Lamps as well. That Lamps, I mean, you, you can't not mention him in them in that category as well, just for the for the amount of goals as a as a midfielder he scored. I see what you're doing here, Rob. You just mention as many players as you can, and we'll all get them on the podcast. I like your style. I like the style. Yeah. Well, well, maybe I need to start mentioning a few more. You're made to take criticism of Man United players, all right? But you know what? Funny enough, it's, it's, I mean, you talk about international football there, and um. um England have always been graced with, I think, really, really good midfield players, but they've always had the problem about maybe fitting players into into certain positions. Yeah, uh, and that's been the case with England. You know, they have had great players, but I don't think any manager's really seen the the benefits of playing them all together. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a great, great chat and a great argument that we we could probably 
sit all night and talk to talk to to each other about well we will and we will return to this on a future edition of the Robbie Further podcast the reason we've got to cut this short is because well our very special guest uh, today uh, on this pod is ready and waiting for us and he is a man who actually had a at a time had the problem that you've just said there fitting into a system for England he is one of the best midfielders of his generation I'll allow you to introduce this man because you've just said it Rob he's the best midfielder that you've ever seen or ever played with yes uh, I mean I, I will I mean I, I will put Stevie Mack into a um, into into a category there as well. I mean, last last week we were lucky enough to have um, the the king on, obviously Sir Kenneth Aglishian. Uh, whenever you talk about the greatest players that have ever wore a Liverpool shirt, obviously Sir Kenny is is arguably the best. But certainly the the next guest that we'll have on would run him close as the greatest ever Liverpool player, and it's none other than Steven Gerrard. This is the Robbie Fowler podcast. Powered by McDonald's. McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee. Simple. Dubai Eye 103.8. How are you, Steve? You okay, pal? My on mute, or can you hear me, boys? I can hear you, mate. Can you hear us? Yeah, all clear. All clear. How are we? All good? All good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, not bad, mate. One sec. But I thought you were stripping off there, Steve. What's going on? Get your muscles out. <laughs> <laughs> How long have we got you for, Steve? 30 minutes, 40 minutes? Yeah, sounds just crack on with you, Rob. Are you over in India, or? I- India, mate, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you tell by my red face? I'm fucking boiling hot today. Just thought you might be at home. I can see a gym post there in the background. <laughs> no. That's just it. Uh, I mean, they, they, they probably stick them on the top of the car, can't I? The, uh, the, the dice, the rolly dice. Yeah. Where's your Puma Kings and that? Oh, they've well gone, mate. I'm a, I'm a Nike man now, aren't I? Oh, yeah. Stay, you know, after the uh, give us uh, 30 40 minutes, and if you're if you're bored and you want to go, just stick your hand up or just change, and we'll and we'll um, we'll just, just get you leave. off the yeah. bottom right corner, <laughs> <laughs> just do that, that might be better. No, let's work. What are we on now? Quarter past, I've got something on a three, so got 45 minutes there to, to yeah. get done. Fantastic, Brilliant. Steve. Yeah, all right, mate. Well, listen, can, can we start then, Steve? Yeah, so, um, yeah. obviously, thanks for joining us, mate, and obviously, pleasure. We've had some. Unbelievable good guests on. We've had Jürgen, we've had Sir King Kenny, uh, and obviously yourself. So all proper, proper Liverpool legends. And we just wanted to get you some some highs, some lows, uh, and just to generally get a, a good feel of of how you're enjoying management. You know how how you've how you've evolved in the three years at at Rangers and the difference between you know going from under eighteen level uh, yeah. straight into the the adult world, if you like. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good company. I've obviously kept an eye on the on the first few and had a little look into them as well. They, they were really good, but it's good to be in good company. So yeah, fire ahead, go on. I'm all yours. Yeah, let's just start there, Stephen. Obviously, I saw you in Dubai, ooh, January of last year. Rangers Football Club, massive club. Graham's already given me a telling off as just how big the football club is. How is it all going? How, how do you feel you have, just to pick up on what Robbie said there, how do you feel you have evolved as a man, as a manager since going up north of the border? Well, first and foremost, you're right. It is a massive club. Obviously, um, like a lot of people down south, you look at the the old firm clubs from afar and you realise the the two individually really big clubs. And you hear a lot about the old firm. You watch a lot of games on the TV. You realise they both got incredible fan bases. But until you're actually in this, in terms of being in this position and you're working for the club, uh, you really realise the intensity and the magnitude of the club, the following it's got. Um, and you obviously get a big feel for the, the pressure, pressurised environment that we're working under. Um, 
I'm really enjoying the journey so far. We're obviously in a fantastic place uh, sitting here right now. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. It has been a journey and a process. We've had some lows and some tough days along the way as well. But I think you'd have to sometimes go through them days uh, um, to grow and evolve, especially being a new group together. Um, but I think we're around 31, 32 months into the job now. And um, we've obviously improved an awful lot. And now we've got to go and try and finish the season uh, as strong as we can to make sure that this season and the journey so far becomes a success. Steve, Steve was, you, was you aware of how... I know you, you just mentioned before how, how big the old firm teams are. Was you aware of just how big they were? Or once you got in the door, did you realise they were, they were actually bigger than what you envisaged? Or Well, I, I'll, I'll take you back to when I, I played for Liverpool and uh, I obviously, on the bucket list, was always to go to an old firm game. Uh, I've been with the same agent since I was 18, 19, Stuart Marshall, who is a big Rangers fan and he's obviously Scottish-born. Um, so I, I heard a lot of stories and, and you hear him talking about the size of the clubs and the size of the old firm and what it would be like if they managed to get down south and become part of the Premier League. Everyone speaks about it and has done for many years. Um, so I wanted to come up and sample it for myself and I went to old firms at Celtic Park, I went to old firms at Rangers. So in terms of the magnitude of an old firm game and the size of the clubs and the support and the noise and the atmosphere, I was well aware of it before I took the job. But, you know... Everyone who's, who loves football is involved in it. You don't realise until you're actually in a certain position that you feel the real intensity of a club, um, the demands of a club, the expectation. Obviously, sitting down with the board, with the chairman and the directors, um, and you really talk about the values of the club and what it stands for. You speak to previous managers. I obviously have had many conversations with Graham Souness, with Walter Smith, people who've worked here before, ex-players who've been here and represented the club. Um, this club will go toe-to-toe with, with any club uh, in Britain in terms of size and following um, and also in terms of the demands from the club because uh, we, we played at a club, Robbie, where you know a draw is a disaster, a draw is a defeat in, in many ways and that's, yeah. it's exactly the same here representing Rangers. Um, it's not acceptable to draw a football match and... Um, you know, so I knew what I was signing up for. I knew what I came into. And um, that's what I missed, really, when I stopped playing. I missed that intensity and that responsibility of the daily routine. And I've got it now, uh, for sure. It's very similar in terms of the demands here at Rangers as it was as a player at Liverpool. So, obviously, Steve, so I, like, I know what type of player he was. And I used that type of manager as well, which is obviously, it, it, it is that winner all costs. And it's because you've been brought up. I mean, you just mentioned it yourself about, obviously, if you, if you draw... You know, that's classed as a defeat because you, you, you're that ingrained in winning anyway. So yeah. how, how are you when you do get beat? I know you haven't had many of them this season, but, you know. <laughs> I, think, I think from a personal point of view, obviously, you, you, early on in the questions, you mentioned about how have I evolved and uh, how have I tried to grow in this role and stuff. And that's one area that I've tried to focus a lot on in terms of being more balanced. Um, you know, at times I've got myself a little bit too down at times. At times I've got myself up too much. Um, but that's what type of person I am. I am. I do try and live the emotions. I do try and be authentic. I try to play that way and play on the edge. So I don't want to change too much. But I think in this role, without to grow into and get better at is being balanced around results. Because... Um, it's important that you don't sometimes show the players or people around the club how you're feeling all the time. So after a defeat or a draw, if, if, if it doesn't feel good and everyone's feeling bad about themselves, you know, I can't be 
sulking around the place and, and, and show that on my face and my behaviour. I've got to, you know, try and play a different game than most at the club and, um, you know, try and move on to the next challenge as quick as we can and try and stay in the most balanced place that I can be in. How have you, Stephen, implemented and, and how do you cultivate a winning mentality? It's well documented. Celtic nine in a row. Rangers have been on their knees as a, as a football club in recent years. You've come in there. You've had to change a lot of players. You brought in a lot of your players. How do you go about resetting the culture? Talk us through that process as a football manager. Well, I think first and foremost, you're right, what you say, it is a process. I think you've got to understand that was not and we were going to change overnight or in weeks and months. Um, I think the, the key to all this was the conversations I had with the chairman and the board and the managing director to say, look, let's be realistic. Where are we as a club? Where is the club at? How big's the gap? What's it going to take to bridge the gap? Uh, how long have I got to, to bridge the gap? You know, is this going to be a case of coming in and the first bit of pressure or the first challenge or the first bump in the road, you know, are, are people going to be knee-jerk and be rash in terms of decisions? Or does everyone understand that it's going to be a process, it's going to take time, we're going to need a certain amount of windows, there's going to have to be personnel change? Because for me, a culture is about people, people who you recruit, people who you keep, um, people who are prepared to change. Uh, people who are prepared to reset and share the challenge and the journey with you. And that's what we've tried to do. We've tried to look at all them different departments. But the key to it all for me has been the backing of the board and the chairman because they've been true to the word. And um, when we have had a bit of a rough spell or a rough patch, I've had nothing but 100% backing. Um, the majority of what I've asked for, if not everything that I've asked for in terms of trying to change personnel and being backed, obviously... Um, when we're after a certain player for a certain role, there is restrictions in terms of how much you can spend and how much you can go on the wages. Um, but in the main, I've had fantastic backing and support, and that certainly played a massive part in getting us to where we are today. Steve, you've, you've spoken in the past about not really, not really identifying with one particular philosophy. Why? Why is that? And and obviously, what is your message to the players with that? Is it do you just sign players because they're great players, or do you want players to come and and fit into a system that you want to play, or do you fit the the players around that system? Yeah, I think I think in 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 terms of recruitment, we we obviously have player profiles for each role within how we play, and we've obviously favoured a certain system over the other systems, but we have tried to adapt and change within game, um, or if we come up against a certain opponent, we change. I, I, I get asked this question a lot, and in terms of philosophy, I think what's important for me is to not nail myself to one philosophy and make a liar out of myself, because I think it all depends on what your job is, where you're working, what league you're working in. So, for example, this was my first job at Rangers. If, for example, my philosophy was... Uh, a low block, hard to play against, and we we sit back um, and, we, and we soak it up and play on the counter. That, that doesn't work in every game. So for me, a, a philosophy, we have a culture and we have a set of non-negotiables and everyone lives by them. And obviously in my head, I want to play a certain way, which is to have a really tough team to play against, really aggressive team, really organised. We move around the pitch together and we own the pitch. And obviously you want to play in a style where the fans get entertained and you score goals and you're creative and, and all this. That's how you see it in your head. But what happens if you're playing a team, for example, like Porto or Benfica, who've got more expensive players than you, players with more experience, players who 
you know, maybe player for player, they're operating on a different level than you. You know, I can't go and approach that game the way I'd approach, for example, a game at home against the team at the bottom of the league in the SPL. So it's having, having a philosophy and a way of playing and how you want it to look, but also being able to adapt from game to game to what that game needs. Can I ask, Steve, you, you've obviously played under so many great managers. You, you go through the list, similar to, to Rob. You look at Gerard Houllier, you look at Rafa Benitez, Brendan Rodgers as well. If you were to, to take all those managers, Fabio Capello, Svenjor and Eriksson from an England perspective, who's the manager that had the biggest impact on you? As a player? As a, play, as a player, Rafa Benitez, without a, sh- a shadow of a doubt, I think Julier was that father figure for me when I first came into the team and he helped, obviously, uh, sort of change the profile of me in terms of size and being able to cope with the demands. He introduced me to being uh, an elite player in terms of your standards on and off the pitch and he gave me my opportunity. So he played a major role at the beginning uh, and he held me hand through the, the stages where you're raw and, you, and you're trying to find yourself as a player Rafa sort of took me game from a tactical and, and technical point of view to the next level i.e. learnt me what it means to play in part of a team tactics to be in a low block to slide to, to be aggressive to be responsible in your position um, he also changed the, my role he, he learnt me how to play the game with me back to goal i.e. being a number 10 behind a number 9 Um so I'd say them two, from a Liverpool point of view, played the, the biggest part. In terms of management, I've tried to be a sponge and, and, and steal and learn all different things from all the managers I've played for. You know, in, um, not just, you know, you look at Julier and, and Benitez, they were really compact managers, hard to play against. Roy Hodgson, the same. Uh, Capello, very similar, where it's about your organisation and your shape. And I've tapped into loads of that education throughout this Rangers journey, especially in Europe and the top games that we play domestically. Um, at the same time, I've stole stuff from Brendan Rodgers, from, um, you know, other managers, Sven Gordon Eriksson, them type of people in terms of the style, how it looks, in terms of playing through the lines, building from the back. And um, I think it's important to be yourself when you're in these roles and do it your way. But I've worked with top managers and top coaches, so I'd be a fool not to start try and steal and, and use their expertise as well to, for my benefit. Steve, does, does man management play a, a huge part of your, your role as well? Massive. It, it, would you say, because I'm, I'm a big believer in man management more than anything. So you've just mentioned Massive. that the likes of Rafa, the likes of Jared Hule, who technically and tactically were as good as anyone I've ever seen. Mm. But like the man management was, was not superb, but I, mm. I enjoyed playing managers who used to sort of take you under wing and, and get you to go out there and express yourself that little bit more. Yeah, I think Julier was really skilled. He knew when to provoke, but when also to put his arm around you. And um, I think he was a bit more forceful with the more experienced players, i.e. yourself and Paul Ince. And he was probably a bit more firmer with you, with you guys. I got a, a lot more man management off Julier, probably because of my age. Yeah. Um, and he obviously seen me at an age where he can have a big impact on me. I think um, with some managers, they're clever because they put other people around them to help them with the man management, the good cop, bad cop situation. For me, man management's not just being nice to a player all the time and giving him hugs and telling him he's great and blowing smoke. That That's not man management for me. For me, it's about being honest and building that relationship and having that respect and knowing when to provoke a player and when a player needs his arm around him. Because at the end of the day, they're all human. They're all different. They've all got a different role to play in terms of contributing towards the team. And as a manager, it's about getting to know them players, what makes them tick, what provokes them. Um, when did they need some love? When did they need a little bit of a 
you know, me to you eye contact to say, come on, I need a bit more. And um, it's just trying to get them relationships right throughout your team and your squad. If you do, you normally get a healthy culture around the place. I speak to a lot of Rangers fans, Stephen, and, and, and still there's a bit of... I guess there's a bit of a kind of uncertainty around you in the sense that not many people can pigeon you into what kind of manager you are. Are you a tracksuit, whistle and mouth on a Monday to Friday? Are you someone that likes to step back? And I always reference Brendan Rogers. it was when he was over here in Dubai. He said the best piece of advice he's ever been given was from Sir Alex. He said the sooner you can get your coaching staff to understand what you want, exactly what you want and take a step back, the sooner you can really get to work in the managerial job. Is that a philosophy? Is that an idea that resonates with you? I think there's a few things that are important to discuss here. Obviously, when you're taking a job, it's important you put the right people around you in terms to complement your skill set. You've got to self-analyze yourself, where you're at, what are you good at, what's your skill set, and then work out what you need around you to to make a really effective uh, and a good coaching team. Uh, I believe I've got that here. Um, in terms of taking a back step, I, I'm not ready to take a back step. I think when you're more experienced and you've maybe been in the role for many, many years, maybe with age, you feel like that's the right decision. Um, what I'll never do is try and do someone else's job better than them who's better than me at doing that job. Um, so, for example, um, I w- I'd been working on a coaching team behind the scenes when I was the manager of Liverpool's under-18s and 19s for some time. People wouldn't believe how close I was watching certain people to take with me when the opportunity eventually came. Um, Now, I haven't had the luxury of retiring early uh, from the game or not being a player in terms of having that pitch time and to really become a coach who's coached for 20 years, i.e. a Brendan Rodgers, a Mourinho, a, a Michael Beale, who's my first team coach here. Now, it'd take me 15, 20 years to get as good as Michael Beale as an on-pitch coach to deliver sessions on a, on a daily basis. So I let Mick be Mick Beale because he's the expert, he's got the skill set. But what I, what I do is I make sure I'm here for every session. I make sure I'm in the middle of every session. I make sure I step in if I feel like I need to step in. If I need to take a part of the session, I'll take part of the session. I'm always around the team shape, how I want it to look in possession, out of possession. But what I won't do is overtake everyone and stand on people's toes. And then the players, by the time Saturday three o'clock comes, they're sick of me voice, they're sick of me face. And after six months, no players want to play for you. So it's that understanding uh, what, what are my skill sets? How does that work in the, in the weekly routine and schedule? And where does everyone else fit around that to make sure that we've got the right pieces in the right places? And I, I must say, my staff have been incredible for me. Um, They've been here every single session. They've, they've lived the journey with me. I've got total belief and confidence in them. Um, and I see this as a relationship and a group for, for a long time, if that's what they want as well. But for me as a manager, I, I never want to step on anyone's toes and do their job or try and do their job better than them if they're better than me at doing it. I, I totally agree with that, actually, because I'm, I'm a bit less similar to that to myself, actually. I have obviously my coach over here who I let him sort of run all the sessions and I come in and butt in when I need to. Uh, mm. But I... I always felt, Robbie, as a manager, that was really effective for me. Um, so, you know, I, I liked managers like Rafa. Rafa didn't do it all. Julio didn't do it all. But when they did, it was like, oh, wow, you know, this is the, the important part of the week. This is the information, the vital information that we need to preparation for the game. Um, 
I think some managers that try and do, you know, the warm-ups, the, the rondos, the possessions, the running, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, you end up getting sick and tired of the voice and, you know, that's when they can become a little bit stale. Yeah, I agree with that. Steve, can, can I take you back to, obviously, when you were a player at Liverpool? So, everyone always goes on about, you know, how good of a player you was and, obviously, what you've achieved and what you've won and what you've basically what you've achieved in a Liverpool shirt now everyone always mentions like Istanbul in 2005 would you is that your greatest achievement in terms of football uh, yeah I think it's the most popular in terms of you know obviously winning the Champions League is is a unique moment um, especially as captain coming from Liverpool being the local lad it's, it's obviously one of the most favourite moments in my career without, without a doubt but I think when you look back at it all and you analyse it all, obviously, my debut was one of the biggest days in my life. You know, I'd sat on the cop, I'd been on the main stand, I'd watched you for many, many years. When I first walked into the dressing room at Melwood, it was, was a big day. You know, there's tons and tons of massive moments and pivotal moments throughout your career. It's not just about Istanbul, but I think a lot of people obviously put the connection together because it was me the highlight of my career if you like yeah Stephen the, the, the reason I'm asking you that is because when I, when I think of you and as much as look I, I know you're an unbelievable player that that Champions League final doesn't really resonate with me because I resonate the 2006 FA Cup final yeah because I, I think what you would what you'd done in that game was just I mean, it was proper Roy the Rovers. I mean, for everyone who doesn't know, Stephen scored a, a last-minute equaliser from about 35 yards. And I don't, honestly don't think anyone else could have done that. And that was, that was you grabbing a team. I ate what you did the year before in the Champions League final. That was you grabbing a team who were, you know, were dead on the feet and everyone was shattered. And then you just came alive in, in the last minute and scored this unbelievable goal. And, and I loved that more than the Champions League final. Yeah, I think I think if you're talking about a 90-minute performance, uh, what's your favourite performance when, for example, it, it just happened and it's difficult to describe? Because you know yourself, Robbie, when you play at that level where you've played well, it's almost like on autopilot. So if you look at the 2006 performance, that's probably one of my, one of my if not the best performance over 90 minutes. Um, you know, that was probably the performance that shocked myself when you don't even realise you've got that in your locker, to be honest. But, um, obviously, the, the first half in Istanbul didn't get a kick, chasing shadows. You're, you're up against that diamond in midfield. You, you can't get near them. I, I got spun by Kaka for, for for one of the goals, the Crespo one, the little dink. A lot of things went wrong in Istanbul for me from a personal point of view. Um, me and the team, we were nowhere near it in the first half. Um but it's about the outcome. <laughs> and yeah, if you're talking course. about outcomes and, you know, worldwide uh, audiences, obviously Istanbul and the Champions League had a, as a much world audience rather than just an FA Cup final, even though the FA Cup final is massive to us, especially here in England. Um, so I think it, it comes down to the magnitude of the game and the outcome of the game. So Istanbul will always be the biggest. But if you're talking about a 90-minute performance, 
2006 was much better for sure. I've got to yeah. take I've got to take you back there, Steve, in 2005. It's a question you've had probably a million times, but I want to hear it from from you. I wanted I want to transport you back there. You, you've said you've had a nightmare of a, an opening 45. You're three 0 down for goodness sake. Where are you mentally at that point? Because the the Royal the Rover stuff that Rob talks about, you're going into that dressing room. Rafa, well documented the change, the little alteration he makes with Didi coming on. Take us back there. What was said? What was said amongst the players? In order to inspire that second half performance, well, I think I think first and foremost in this situation for me personally, a bit of fear has kicked in. A bit of fear of embarrassment, of of failure, of not not getting out of this game or this the, the, you know this um, this time what what you're prepared for and what you'd put into it. So there's a bit of fear kicking in from a personal point of view. You felt like you'd let everyone down. Now, when you go into a dressing room, you, you've got a group of men who are all emotional at that moment. They're all flat, they're all down, they're full of regret. Um, so that's basically painting the picture of the initial first couple of minutes of the session. Rafa asked us to rest and, and be calm. Most managers give you a couple of minutes to gather your thoughts. Players are speaking to each other, but we'd had a couple of injuries and a couple of knocks as well. So to describe the first few minutes, it was chaos. <laughs> it was chaos emotionally. Um and we obviously, if we were true to ourselves, thought it was over and the game was gone and, and dead and buried. But a few things stick in my mind, a bit of fear kicking in, a bit of hurt, a bit of pain, and obviously realising that the fans were still with us, which is quite unusual. The Liverpool fans are fantastic, but throughout my career, I've never known the Liverpool fans to still be with us when we've been 3-0 down. So if that was at Anfield, for example, or Goodison or Old Trafford or Stamford Bridge, if you 3-0 down at half-time, they'd let you know about it. But I think there was an appreciation of the journey that we were punching above our weight, that on paper, AC Milan were the favourites for the game. And sometimes in football, you've got to be honest and go, well, we were outclassed and outplayed. And that's the way it was at halftime. Rafa got calm. He spoke extremely well. He had his moments and he'd done his little changes tactically. He he made a big emphasis on trying to get the next goal. Um, and... He reminded us about the fans and, and that type of stuff. And then, you know, people are off doing bits and bobs. And then the last 30 seconds, 45 seconds before we went out as captain, I felt like it was my time and my moment to, to, to you know, say the last couple of things in terms of a rally cry to, to play for a bit of pride, do what we can to get back in the game. And, you know, if we are going to get beat, let's leave a mark on them. Let's, you know, let's not have it how it was for the first half. We were too passive. We weren't organised enough and we were outclassed. Steve, you know what you've just obviously mentioned there. You mentioned before about obviously the 2006 where you know you you won that game, uh, eventually winning it. That game uh, against uh, Milan, you're getting spun for Perlo for the you know for one of the goals. I mean, Paul Chinsky is not going to spin you for a goal against. <laughs> That, that, he still that, says he means that. He still <laughs> says he means that, con. <laughs> Great finish, by the way. Oh, it was, it was, to be fair. But Steve, just going back to obviously your Liverpool days again. So when, um, I mean, you, you have played with some unbelievable players. Uh, but So you think of the, the 07 08 with, uh, with Torres and then you think of 2013-14 uh, with, uh, with Luis Suarez. C- compare the, the contrast of, of those players and... Bit of an horrible question is if you could pick one of them just to play with for the rest of your career, who would who would it have been? Yeah, I'll come to that last bit of the question, and I will put my neck on the line and pick one. But I think I think with strikers, if if you look at my journey throughout from say ninety eight 
to, to, to the year I left. I played with some magnificent strikers. I played with you, obviously. You, you'd had your peak. You'd had your peak before Whoa. I came in. You'd, Whoa, you'd steady, on, fella. steady on, fella. <laughs> you'd, you'd, had your, you'd had your knee injury. Um, but obviously, I was a season ticket holder from the age of 18 to 23 with you and without blowing smoke. Obviously, that is world-class level. Then I came into Michael Owen, for example, who from when he scored the goal with England. I played with Michael Owen in his peak years as well. And as a midfielder, he was a dream for me, you know, wanting to play balls in behind. He was very quick. He had that blistering pace and he could finish as well when he got in. Um, after that, then I, I comes into uh, the, the Torreses of this world. Um, now, the reason I always talk about Torres and Suarez is because I, I felt like I was in my prime at that time. So I played with you when I was very young. I was still raw. I was still developing. Um, I played with Michael Owen where I was a little bit further on, but I still didn't feel like I was in my peak years. I was still getting a few injury niggles and, um, you know, still finding me, me feet and my profile, if you like. But I bump, bumped into Torres and Suarez at, at a perfect time. More Torres, really, because I'm in the peak years. You know, you're talking uh, around about that 2006, seven and eight years where I, I felt like, you know, I could go against anyone on the pitch. It didn't matter who it was. You know, Vieira, Scholes, Lampard, blah, 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 all all world class top players. But I, I felt like I could face anyone at that time. I felt like I was in my peak. So I always go back to Torres and Suarez because they're, they're my best memories of how I felt from a personal point of view. But if you look at Fowler, Owen, Torres, Suarez, Sturridge, <sighs> uh, even Coutinho to a certain extent, playing with that level of player as a midfielder is is an easy job for me because that is top-class world level. I'm not saying that because I'm on this podcast where you have said it many a times before, but I've got a, re a regret with you is that I never played with you from 18 to 23. I never played with Michael Owen longer uh, prior to the Leeds injury. I never played for Torres long enough because he went to Chelsea and broke my heart. And I probably come into Suarez as I'm just coming out of my peak years, even though I really enjoyed that relationship. So all strikers are different. They've all got different styles and, and different qualities um, but all of them names were a dream for me because the movement uh, the hunger to score goals the relationship they tried to have with me in terms of being on the same wavelength um, so it's very difficult to pick one but I'd say if you'd ask me who was the the best player on a daily basis consistently I'd say Suarez is an animal out of all them but my best years were alongside Torres in terms of how I felt. You, you said there, Stephen, it broke your heart. I don't know if that was tongue-in-cheek or not, but when you got news that, that Liverpool had made the decision to sell him, was it genuinely like that? Were you absolutely gutted? Really, really gutted, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, we're working so hard at this point to try and get as close as we can and close the gap and challenge. And, you know, at Liverpool around that time, you always felt like you were taking huge strides and getting closer and progressing really well. And then at a really key time and a key moment for the team and the group, uh, a big player gets took away from that and it takes time to recover from that. And, um, you know, my relationship with Torres, I was getting a lot of goals at that time. Um, I was in my peak. I was feeling fantastic. Listen, I understand everyone's situation is different. People have different dreams and different paths and not everyone's a local lad who who loves the club. I appreciate and respect all that. But at the same time, it still hurts when someone leaves a club. I've, I've told Fernando that. I tried to get him to stay. I told his agent the same. But they made a decision and 
bad decision was out of my hands. But yeah, it, it hurt very bad. See, see that, Stephen? You actually picked up the phone to Fernando and his agent say, don't do this. Stay, we'll win stuff here. I no, I didn't have to pick the phone up. They were both at Melwood. <laughs> that is brilliant. That is great stay just, to, stay, stay, just to go back there. So, you know, before when I asked you that question, I actually didn't want you to bring, because I knew the answer there straight away, but I didn't want to get mentioned in them because... I didn't want to let myself down. So when I said, who's the best player you've ever played with striker, I only said Suarez or Torres. So just take me out of that equation. I don't, I don't want to look bad to say, you know. Well, what, what, what I'm saying to you is, for example, if, if your 18 to 23 form met, met my peak years, I'd, 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 I'd quite be excited by that. For example, you know what I mean? You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, we could have been like uh, Rushy and Kenny, couldn't we? Well, I, play, I played with Sturridge, for example. Sturridge would have been, obviously, in his peak years, but I'm 33, 34, so I can't get box to box. I can't run off him anymore. I'm more dropping back into a number six and more of a playmaker from deep type role. Um, and Daniel Sturridge is so, so talented. Unbelievably talented, but, you know, his career was at a different stage to mine. And I think with a midfielder and a striker, if you can get that when they're both in the peak years, that's when yeah. you have your, your best memories. So, for example... Stevie McMahon, Steve McManaman would pick you, for example, because you were both in your peak. You're getting 30-plus goals a season. He's getting double figures from midfield. You can see that chemistry, that relationship. That's no different to me and Torres, but at a different stage. And yeah. I think that's very important when you're talking about an attacker midfielder and a number nine. It's about yeah. that relationship. Well, that's what's the relationship. We could have been like the, uh, the, the Kenny and Rushy of the modern-day era, could we? I mean, obviously, without the big nose and the moustache, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they definitely had the big nose. Steve, <laughs> <laughs> so, before you mentioned obviously some of the players that you played against, uh, like the Vieira, Keane, Scholes, Lampard, who, who was, in your opinion, the best or the toughest opponent you played with against? Sorry, out of those names, you never mentioned Zidane there or Guardiola or Raquelme or. I'm, I'm know, talking Premier League, Steve. Oh, Premier League. Okay, well, look, you're talking about all of them are world class in, in their own right, all very different, all got different attributes. And um, you obviously had to adapt your game depending on which one of them you were playing against. Um, I'd rather play against Vieira than Keane, for example, because you know they're going to be in front of you. For example, the top midfielders, really strong, work hard and try and kill you with the pass. And Vieira to try and run past you now and again. Um, but for me, the most dangerous midfielders are the ones that run off your shoulder and run into the box. So you always have to be on your guard even more when you played against Scholes and Lampard, but they're different types of midfielder. Um, very difficult to pick one out of them because Lampard's a goal scorer midfielder whose timing was incredible. Paul Scholes could run a game and was so clever and could outplay you and could go on your blind side as well and score from the edge of the box a lot, same as Frank. But Vieira and Keane played most of the game in front of you and they used to try and run a game by dictating the, the pace of the game, the speed, and they'd try and lead and run a game and manage a game w within the game. So they're all very different. They're all top class. Um, but I think if you play for Liverpool over that length of time that I did, you, there's many more that you can mention as well who, who've caused me problems over the years. Steve, I want to, and, and this was, it's an opinion. So uh, sport and football is all about opinion. We had Joey Barton on the pod a couple of weeks ago and he said that in, in his opinion, you were head and shoulders above the lot. He, he said that you're head and shoulders above the current Liverpool midfielders. And isn't it the kind of weird twist of fate that they are the ones, and it's obvious who they are, that are, that are celebrating a Premier League title. You never climbed that 
Everest. And I wonder on that, you know, he's saying you're head and shoulders above that. How is there a bit of jealousy there? How do you view yourself in that regard? Because, of course, it was the one that was missing of all of what you won. And, and yet the, the Milners, the Hendersons, not to be disrespectful at all, but they're celebrating a league title. Yeah, listen, I, I don't think jealousy is the, the, the right word. I, I'm, I'm not a jealous person in general or away from football. I've never been a jealous player throughout my career. Um, so jealousy, I've never ever felt jealous towards a current group of players or a, or a group of players that were before my time. Um, it wasn't to be for, for, for me. I tried everything I could. Um, I pushed as hard as I could. I got extremely close and had obviously a real low moment during the back end of that season that I don't really like talking about, but it obviously comes up from time to time, but it gets headlines and I want to move on from that. But I'm absolutely proud being a Liverpool fan now that the team have gone and won the Premier League. I knew it was only going to be a matter of time. I think it's the best Liverpool team I've watched or been involved in um, since the, the the teams of, what, the 80s and um, them type of eras. I'm not a jealous person at all. I'm absolutely delighted for Jordan Henderson. I know what he's put into it himself. I played with him. I know the guy. I know the man. I know the player. Um there was no one happier than me when, when I seen Liverpool win that Premier League. But I'm sitting here now wishing that I had one myself <laughs> yeah. and that my journey went slightly different at certain times or we could have attracted a few more better players at certain times when we were close or a certain player didn't leave. So I have got a couple of regrets in terms of my own, uh, what I achieved when it comes down to the Premier League. But jealousy and um, disappointment and all that, them type of words, I, I don't really relate to them, to be honest. Good answer. Steve, you know... Um... I mean, you mentioned obviously Torres was probably the best striker that you played with. So, you know, in 2013, where it's probably the most fun I've, I've I've enjoyed watching the Liverpool side, Liverpool sides, because obviously the the games that you won and you know the, the the joy and the enjoyment from every every single player was it was an absolute joy to watch. Now, obviously, finishing second in 2007 and eight, and finishing second in 2013-14. What what was your favourite team to play in out of those two sides? Uh, I was in my best years in the early one under Rafa, uh, but it never ever felt like we were close or in a title race for real back then. I think it was 08 or 09 was, was the second time we finished second. We never really got in front or really felt like we were the favourites at any point. It always felt like we were chasing and catching and, and we had a small outside chance. I think in, in, in 13, 14... Um, we had such an exciting team. Brendan had us playing incredible football. Um, his, his man management skills were really good and, and we were pushing incredibly hard and we were the favourites at the time. We were playing the best football. We were the most aggressive team. Everything was going for us. Um, and then obviously that moment obviously derailed us, if you like, or was the start, the beginning of the, the derailment. Um, so it was probably the 13-14 was a better team and yeah. had a more realistic chance of winning it for sure. Um, because in 2008-9 we, we didn't feel like we were ever going to get close enough we were always like chasing the team above OK stay, stay as well and, and I mean forgive me for bringing this up and I wanted to obviously bring up the 2013 season because obviously everyone always mentions to slip with yourself uh, and, and to be honest and I'll tell you the reason why it does me head in uh, but that year, do you honestly remember everything about that year in terms of yourself and Man City? 
Do, do you know what I, I, what I've, you? I've, I've never I've never looked back on the season as a whole. Uh, I've got vague memories. Uh, I'm not like a cara that is like <laughs> a stat only remembers every pass <laughs> and every decision and yellow card and throwing in corner. Um, I haven't really allowed myself to go back there. I'm not someone who really looks back that much. Um, the memory will always be there. I'm yeah. better now, for example, dealing with it than I was in the in the straight aftermath because it was really raw. I don't blame myself for the outcome of the whole season um, because the, the moment was actually cruel and something that I couldn't control. It wasn't a bad bit of play. It wasn't something that I got wrong. I didn't let my teammates down or the, the game plan down or anything. It was just a, an unlucky moment, but it was yeah. such a big moment. So I have to respect that. Um, and I'm always someone who is firm on myself in terms of responsibility and accountability. So I'd always take it on the chin. If it does get mentioned or people do go to it, I'll always front it up and uh, accept it. But I've been around the game since I was fucking 14 years of age. Sorry for the language, 14 years of age. I know to achieve something over 38 games, there's a lot of things that happen good yeah. and bad along the journey. I get that, but that won't take away um, or underplay that moment. Yeah. I've, I've accepted it and I've took accountability for it. But Steve, the reason I want to bring her up, right, is because, right, you know, people go on about Liverpool saying, not not you, but Liverpool bottled the league that year. Now, I know mm. for a fact he never, because I've studied that that year, right, and Liverpool lost one out of the last 19 games, right? Incredible, yeah. right? Man City lost two out of the last 24, but no one ever mentions Chelsea, you know. Chelsea finished third on 82 points, right? So Chelsea lost against um, Sunderland. Sunderland Sunderland the week before they beat us 2-0 at Anfield where As- Azpilicueta slipped and gave away a penalty and you probably remember remember Barini scored a penalty yeah 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 and so they yeah, won that game so they, lo- they lost the league Chelsea by four points so the game before they beat Liverpool they lost at home to Sunderland and the game after Liverpool they drew at home to Norwich so the game against Sunderland was the first time they'd lost at Stamford Bridge uh, in 78 games and they yeah. lost the league by four points and it, it always sort of grates me a little bit because Chelsea I think were a team that bottled the Premier League that year they lost three out of the last nine games mm. yeah. and no one you ever meant me no, you make no, me feel better here. can we just carry on like, can I add a bit more from you <laughs> that's, that's all I want to because it actually does matter it's because people have a go at you for slipping because of who you are and what you've achieved Listen, look, that's fine if, if people want that to be the go-to moment and the memory I'm, I'm fine with that um, the people that know the game and uh, were involved and you know see the game from the first game to the last you know obviously it'll be diff- different type of education but if people want that to be the go-to moment um, I'm alright with that well stay I, I, I want everyone to to sing about Azpilicueta slipping the week before <laughs> because Chelsea lost the league no, I do because you've I had don't. it for years, and I don't want them to sing about you because you're an unbelievable player. and no, you, listen, you don't deserve it. Listen, the songs, the names, and that—that that doesn't hurt me. I've had more stick than that. Don't worry about that. I've you've had more stick in a dressing room, to be fair. Some of the some of the club <laughs> I used to wear. But that, that, that was what I was getting to, Steve. To be honest, so uh, you, you probably haven't looked into it, but Chelsea lost three out of the last game, uh, three out of the last nine games. And I know, no, and no listen, one ever I think, mentions I think it. Every, every player who, who, who plays at the top has 
highs and lows and, you know, has fantastic memories that they remember and cherish and some that they don't want to talk about or they're not comfortable talking about. But I'm not someone who would try and uh, make myself feel better or put myself in a better position by saying, oh, well, Asper Laqueta slipped or the Chelsea fans sing about that me and point to and John Taylor. I, 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 I just say, yeah, OK, that was me. I've I done that. That's on me. I'll take it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm responsible for that. If that makes other people feel better by pointing fingers at me and, and or singing about me, good for them. I'm not really that bothered. I don't lose any sleep over that type of stuff, to be honest. Right, stay obviously aware of the time, and I know you, you're busy, but I think before you go, right, we mentioned before about your greatest achievement, um, obviously Champions League, you know, FA Cups. Is your, will your greatest achievement come at the end of the season? I think it'll be right up there uh, alongside it, just because of the work I've had to put in here, the sacrifice, you know, um, not being with my family much. Um, the size and the magnitude of the challenge that we took on, um, the, the the changes we've had to make, I think the feeling, um, especially because of how, you know, most of my good moments and highlights came at the beginning and the, and the middle stage of my career. I obviously had a fantastic memory lifting a cup for Kenny in 2012, but the last few years of me Liverpool thing, you know, because of the the 2013-14 season, and then obviously um, leaving. In, in a year when I was off of the year and I obviously regret that a little bit not staying and signing that year um, it was tough at first for me to not be um, the Liverpool captain anymore I loved it I loved it that much I used to love going in every day I loved my routine I didn't ever want it to go at any age I'd have done it till I was 99 100 years of age you, you, know, you know the feeling um, so then to get back to having this moment that could be alongside all the highlights of my career, I think it'll feel really good if and when we do it. But there's still a lot of hard work to do. There's still big hurdles to get over and I'd never disrespect the challenge or get carried away before it was here. I thought that would Brilliant. be your answer, Steve. I thought that would be yeah. your answer. You can't, we can't get you, can't pin you down. I couldn't pin you down in <laughs> Dubai a year ago and we're not going to pin you down now. But listen, Stephen, bless you. The honesty that you've shown in this past 45 minutes, we appreciate it a great deal, my man. Top man, no Steve. Pleasure, lads. All the best. See you soon, mate. Good luck with everything. Cheers. Cheers. Good luck, mate. This is the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee. Simple. Dubai Eye 103.8. Stephen Gerrard on the Robbie Fowler Podcast. And Rob, your your contact books, I've got to step up at some point, pal. I said it last week. Yeah, yeah, well, you have, because, I mean, at the minute, everyone thinks this is a, a Robbie Fowler and Liverpool Friends podcast. <laughs> but listen, you, you, you need... Yeah, you I'm need getting to start, stick. You I'm need getting... to start joining in. I know, I need to. Well, what, what I should say is, Robbie Fowler and Christopher McCarty <laughs> and Liverpool Friends. <laughs> being, yeah, being a big red and all. He, he was brilliant, was he? Hey, yeah, was hey, rail that back a bit. I've just heard what you said there. But <laughs> that, that was... Uh, yeah, he was brilliant, Stephen. Very good, very good speaker, isn't he? Yeah, uh, and he speaks well actually. And and funny enough, a lot of the, the a lot of the chat that he was talking, I mean, it resonates quite a lot because what he was saying there about his his coaching philosophy, uh, totally agree with uh, the way he is with his staff and his players in around the place. Um, you know, that voice all the time. Players will get fed up with it. You know, and, and I'm very very similar. You know, that is that is my ethos and my method as well. Uh, because I think that is is, is important in football. I think mm-hmm. you, you obviously you employ the people around you because they're experts at what they're doing. 
Uh, and look, it takes it takes a big man to ad- admit what he's just done there. You know, obviously, you know, he's saying that there's there's better coaches out there. Uh, and he, he lets them get get ahead with his job, or lets them go on with their job, and and, and I totally relate because I, I'm in the same boat. There's better coaches than me. You know, there's no there's no questions needed to be answered on that one. Uh, but I think the uh, you know you as a as a as a figure in that you know forefront of the team, uh, you you just come in and you join in when you need to, uh, and and be that voice and be that man when uh, when the team needs you. Yeah, Stephen Gerrard, 21 points clear Rangers are at the top of the Scottish Premiership. Listen, Rob, we are going to catch up again next week. I will, I promise you, bring someone to the party. For now, a quick (laughs) reminder, uh, another episode next Monday, the Robbie Fowler podcast, available on all your usual podcast haunts. Uh, We're also, we've got a YouTube channel. Do check that out. Give that a subscribe, would you? Because you can watch every single interview. That's Jurgen Klopp, that's Graham Souness, that's Joey Barton, that's Sir King Kenny, and now Stephen Gerrard, all up on there, the Robbie Fowler podcast. Podcast. Good man, Rob. Catch you next week. See you soon, pal. This has been the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. Hear it again and more of our podcasts at Dubai I1038.com.